My name is George Vasey, and it's an absolute pleasure to see you all today. And it's also been an absolute pleasure to work with Invisible Dust in putting this event on. I'm just going to go straight into it because we have a lot to cover today. Um, and I'm going to hand over for our first keynote panel with the chair, Jet David Malone. And they're going to be talking about the future and the stories we are telling about the future. Welcome to Forecast, everyone. My name is David Malone. I'm a science documentary filmmaker and writer. And this morning's first panel is The Future and the Stories We Tell. So why stories? Why not answers? I mean, in difficult times, we'd all like answers. It's easy to think of science in particular as just about answers, but it's not. Scientific discoveries are more like marker stones left by explorers saying, this is a dead end, or come this way, come help. This looks like a path that might lead somewhere. The idea we're discussing on this panel is that the best science is not so very different from the best art. They both ask us to participate to question our old certainties, and to reimagine our world, to open the imagination, not close it. And perhaps most importantly, to ask new and better questions. This morning, we have three wonderful thinkers and storytellers who've all asked difficult questions and sometimes left a marker pointing the way to a possible answer. We have Samson Kambalu. He's an artist and writer and associate professor of fine art at Ruskin College, University of Oxford. School of Art. His, uh, one of his latest works is going to be on the, it is on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. And um, he told me specifically not to say that he was a trickster, but I think he is rather tricky as an artist. <laughs> Gavin Turk. Uh, Gavin Turk has um, work held in more international public and private collections worldwide than I don't think anyone could possibly count them all. Um, his installations and sculptures have always dealt with issues of authorship, authenticity, and identity. And to give you an idea, in 2014, um, he wrote a book and it was published, but its title was, This is not a book about Gavin Turk. So make of that what you will. And, <laughs> and between them, Priti Parikh is Professor in Infrastructure Engineering and International Development at UCL. She's the founding director of UCL's Engineering for International Development Center and um, was recently named as one of the 100 most influential academics in the UK for her work in climate and sustainability. So what I'm going to do, do is ask all three of our panelists, I'll give them four minutes each, to answer the, the first question, which is how important is storytelling to your work? Um, Samson, would you like to start? Hi, hi. OK. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I will assume some of you know about my work. Uh, I, I work a lot with film. Um, I think because of its tendency, film and this, its tendency to um, inspire performance. I'm coming from Malawi, and we have a strong masking tradition in Malawi. In fact, many societies in Malawi, including my father's tribe, the Chewa, we see art as, as an infrastructure. You know, uh, this is because of the uh, the economy that we have. So that's the economy of the gift. It's called underdevelopment for, by some of you here, but it's more complex than that. So anyway, um, for me, storytelling is, is is what structures the way I approach my my art, which is uh, art as a, a way of speaking truth to power. 
for me, art is not just about complimenting uh, power, but also taking power to tasks, if you like. And so I, I have uh, seen my approach in the history of film itself. I'm interested in early film because of its tendency to uh, incorporate nonlinear time. Uh, so I equate that with sovereignty, you know? And then uh, on the other side of film is film as theater. You know, film uh, as was developed, let's say, when Charlie Chaplin made The Kid, or W. Griffith in America made uh, Birth of the Nation. Uh, some art historians have argued that what we see now is no longer film, but rather theater. And for me, that kind of film represents power. Um, so in my work, power and sovereignty are in conversation. Uh, in, in traditional societies in Africa, uh, linear power is what the chiefs use to structure society. And then linear time is what the people use uh, to question that way of structuring power, or, or stru structuring society, if you like. Um, so you see, yeah, in my work, time is a series of ruptures, if you like. There's, there's no beginning or an end in the way I make my films. And, 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 and the, the things I'm doing in my films question the, the, the mainstream narrative, actually, the way we look at the world, the way we look at society. So, no, that's abstract, but I think the truth is somewhere there. Sorry. Thank <laughs> you, so, Prissy, could I hand over to you next? Sure. So, lovely to see you all here. So, I've spent four years of my life learning how to be civil. I'm a civil engineer. But by night, I'm known as Dr. Pooh, where I do stand-up comedy. Now you're wondering, why would a dull, boring engineer spend her evenings doing stand-up comedy? Let's start thinking about the big challenges facing us. So we've got about six or seven million households in UK facing fuel poverty this winter. We have about three billion people, so almost 50% of people on this planet who do not have access to decent sanitation services, i.e. toilets. We have a billion people on this planet who do not have access to clean water. And I'm throwing this facts at you, and it is impactful, but what I'm missing here is the day-to-day -day lived experiences of those people. So for me, that's why storytelling and that's why stand-up comedy is so important as part of my narrative, because what I can do as Dr. Pooh is I can narrate stories and experiences about how would it be to live in this world of crisis where in addition to the three C's of conflict, COVID and climate, on a day-to-day -day basis, you have to fight for very basic services, basic needs. Now, like where do I get water from? Where do I get electricity from? Where do I go and find my next toilet? Do I have to queue up for an hour? I mean, we are good at queuing up, but still, it is terribly inconvenient to do so. So what I find is that through sharing those day-to-day -day lived experiences, it really enhances uh, the work, the scientific work I do. It brings it to life, and it makes it so real. And I think this is important, because sometimes as scientists, there is this idea that let's throw clean technologies. Yay, we can solve the climate crisis. But then why are people not taking up those clean technologies? Well, because you're not telling the story right. And there's also this notion and challenge in the scientific community that we work in silos. 
So quite often the historians will not communicate with engineers, will not communicate with anthropologists, will not communicate with geographers, um, with those working in health sciences, behavioral sciences. So we end up in a situation where people from the individual disciplines will come and have a story to tell. But that's why I think it's incredibly important that artists and scientists work together to tell the story. Because climate change is such a huge challenge. It's complicated, it's messy. Our lives are messy on a day-to-day -day basis. And the only way we can navigate this huge challenge and mess is if we all join forces. Thank you. Gavin. Hi. So we have the question, how important is storytelling in your work? And obviously, it's very sort of couched, this question. And um, I was kind of like, wow, you know, this is already kind of like, there's already assumptions going on here about art, about my art, about how, art, how I think about art. Um, so I was like, oh. But in actual fact, it really kind of, it actually was and pulled out some, I think, some important thoughts in my mind about the idea of looking into the future or thinking about the future in relationship to art and thinking about it, it has to be storytelling. The future is not there, it's something we, it's there to be made up, it's there to be, it's there to be kind of um, put forward. So it's, it's all suggestive, like the future is, is not, is not inevitable. The future is what, what's, what's that out there that we don't know about. So, um, so already when we think about storytelling, it's going to be a story. This is going to be a story. We're going to tell a story. And, and I think if we think about, or I think about my art, you know, and in terms of the importance of my work, I think that I've got to a point in my career, I suppose, where the, the, the kind of concept of art, and it may be a very cultural perspective. I, I, I feel kind of awkward about kind of culture itself, about, uh, certainly about sort of UK culture as well. I mean, we, we've, we've heard a lot of very kind of like positive and actually really affirmative people talking this morning, and it's been actually rather good. Thank you. Um, but in actual fact, I feel like, you know, recently I went to, to the... Uh, Brussels Art Fair, and, uh, and I was sort of kind of mildly, I was really kind of, I felt kind of caught somehow, and I was really entertained by the idea that people were really looking at art in terms of the stories it was telling, in terms of the, in a way, in terms of the possibilities that art has, and, and it made me think that, that here I feel that, you know, culture has become synonymous with capital. And, um, and I think that, that, there's a, that there's been a kind of, like, a, a, a terrible restriction. And thinking about art now, I mean, I think since the pandemic, it feels that people have really sort of dropped art. Um, so, so I think that, that, that in terms of recognizing things um, about our context, and obviously the context is the blind spot, um, but recognizing things about our context is also to start to create the process of looking at how artists can put things back together and can, in some way, I mean, again, like the idea of art as being an individualistic thing as well is problematic, I think, into the future. And I think probably we need more, uh, uh, ret ret what's it called? Repres representativity. 
<laughs> and on that note, but we need we, basically a more collective idea. So you know, I think that I think that the narrative or the future and the storytelling is going to be one that we all tell together. Thank you, um, Pretty, Can I come back to you? When we think about the, the problems that are facing us, we often think of them as deeply practical problems, so where we need experts. Um, and, and when you, as a scientist, who have practical solutions to practical problems, can you really honestly say that these two tricksters and, and the art world that they represent, are they, do they have something to offer science? Or would you say to your colleagues, look, they're coming around with their art, just lock the doors, don't let them in. We've got serious work to do. How, how is it when you look out from the, the glass towers of science? Ooh, interesting question. I was thinking about food and cookstoves all of a sudden. So what happens is, as engineers, we like to think that technology is the solution to all our problems. And there is a very kind of well-known example of cookstoves. So the idea is, well, if we want to solve the challenge of clean cooking, because there are 2.6 billion people on this planet who do not have access to clean cooking fuels, let's design new cookstoves. They're brilliant. They'll fix the problem. And that's it. But what we find is there are millions of cookstoves being donated, being offered, and they end up in landfill sites, yet causing a bigger environmental challenge. And the reason for that is cookstoves, it's not about cookstoves, it's about food. The taste of food, the texture of food, the color of food. So actually, there is a strong behavior change element here. There is also an activity which involves winning of hearts. It's not about the minds, it's about the hearts. And that's what climate change really, that's why we need kind of the scientists to sit down and say, this is about people, this is about, this is about winning hearts. We cannot do this alone, and we are not the pioneers and leaders. Actually, we need to take a back seat. We need to ask communities and people what they want. We need to work with lovely people like Gavin and Samson, who are able to engage with those communities to co-develop solutions, which will be owned by those communities. So as an engineer, I'm very happy to say I would love to take a back seat and for the artist to lead the way, really. Thank you. Samson, can I ask you, Storytelling is also tied up with power. I mean, powerful people like to be the ones to tell us what the narrative is. A lot of your work has been subverting that, the, the, the powerful stories. But how, how, does, how do you do that? How do, you, how do the people who don't have power get their story, get their narrative to have some currency? How do you do that as an artist? Yeah, um, yes, so the very notion of storytelling alludes to certain kind of narrative, for instance, and, and that's about structuring things that perhaps are not necessarily meant to be together, uh, but that's what power does, you know. So um, I'll take you, uh, in an African setting, in Africa, that's what happens. The chiefs will <laughs> develop a metaphysics, so the priest, of how reality is. Um, but every now and then, then, the masks are brought out to question that. Um, the thing that interests me about masking in Africa is that it's anim animatic. Um, it's a science, actually. The, the, the concepts of masks were developed even before the concept of God was developed. It's, it's, it's nobody knows uh, where, where masking comes from. So, so um, for me, that, that's what a, a, an artist is supposed to do, is to, uh, to, to work around uh, uh, 
the formal narratives, questioning them to open up new ways of looking at the world. Uh, I'm trying to do that in my work. I, tr I travel a lot. I, I, I work site specifically. I like to walk cities and uh, I allow the moment to, uh, to reveal itself to me, the truth of the place. And when that happens, that t tends to uh, question how the city wants to see me the place. And then uh, when that happens, I find myself on part of London. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm a part of Stockholm. Um, so yeah, and, and also when you open up these non-linear narratives within the form of uh, storytelling, you, you create connections as well. So in my work, I've made real connections with people here. Well, before I was making my films that played with this idea of non-linear narratives within specific places, I was always uh, the stranger, you know, the outsider. So I go to the museum and I'm always checking in. But when I go to a city now and apply myself creatively, I find I'm part of the city. I'm part of London now, you can see my uh, <laughs> Trafalgar Square. So um, anyway, uh, but that, that, that works. It, it, it's not just a, a concept, but uh, um, that, that's just a function of, I'll, I'll give you a quick, uh, one quick example. Is that uh, uh, structured narratives, for instance, um, have a tendency also to somehow in the end divide us because it reduces us to the world of things. We become, we began to identify ourselves as just part of necessity. So if you're living in a gift society like Africa, when the masks come out, uh, they, they smash that kind of uh, sense of time and review people to themselves as part of larger scheme of things. And when people come closer to, to, to identifying themselves uh, with larger part of things, they become more generous, childlike, if you like, so. Um, Gavin, is there a danger for art to become sort of instrumentalized, where we say to artists, we need you to do this, we need you to get this message across, because often in your work you've subverted that, you've, you've held up something which appears to be something and said, no, it's not. Is there a danger for art in this? I mean, um, sure. I mean, I you know, art that is shown in galleries and museums is kind of institutionalized is, is, and has been pushed up through certain power structures. And we see historically certain artists get used politically because they're saying the right thing at the right time or their work can be um, put into the right frame. Um, and obviously art, like as a story, as a, as a system of, of, of symbols and signs and doing its job, whatever it is, you know, is going to be subject to change and transfer and, 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 the, and a kind of, in a way, like being corrupted by a power narrative that exists outside of the art. Um, but uh, I guess, you know, and, and artists possibly aren't necessarily the right people to illustrate like, you know, the messages to, to put forward, the messages that we need. But at the same time, maybe that they are able to break through certain kind of ideological blocks to, to kind of, to put something in front of people which, which can challenge their, their ideological space. And that's very difficult because people's ideological space is obviously that's how they see reality. That's their reality. So, you know, art is... Is, is trying and, and you know and, and I think you know the best art certainly 
like proposes a different kind of a, a sort of ideological shift. So you know, it, it is that you know paradigm shifting experience that artists can sometimes make you engage in that shows you round the corner. It shows you a, a different possibility. It shows you a, a, a new world. And 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 I think that when when it does that, and and if it can do that, then obviously you, you know it it's successful in that respect. Hmm. Something for all three of you is we historically we've always seen science as being that which should speak truth to power. But can it do it on its own? Does art also have this role of speaking truth to power? I wonder what the three of you think. Yeah, I, 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 I preferred when science was magic, you know, like Galileo started as a court magician, you know, so just tricks mixed with the practical and the esoteric. Uh, one of my favorite uh, scientist, if you like, if you want to call him, is Edward Mybridge. Uh, I think you know him, he studied the movement of horses and the body. Uh, but actually, if you um, revisit his uh, work, he's not arranging the horses to the scientific lineality, if you like. He, he arranged the pictures according to what felt good or looked good. So I think, for me, that's proper science. Science should accommodate what can't be accommodated, you know. What do you think Otherwise, you just make us of models. You can make a chair, but it doesn't say anything about reality. I think scientists should be more humble. I don't see a scientist as different from a furniture maker, from a, a carpenter. You can make a table, but what does the table say about reality? So if you want to be more than a, that kind of scientist, I think then you should bring in poetry, I would think. Because that's, in the end, that's what real reality is. Reality is not just kind of dry structured. <laughs> it's, I'm sure it's more mysterious than that. Um, I'm sure. Well, you might be surprised to hear I agree with you in part. <laughs> um, I mean, on the way in today, I was thinking of John Lennon. And imagine a world with no hatred and greed. And that partly is why we are facing this climate crisis, because of greed, because we need more, we want more. And we've kind of lost our understanding of the distinction between what is need, what is necessary, and what do we want. And there's, the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, also, I do have to bring the geek out in me, though, because I'm a huge fan of Doctor Who, <laughs> which features a lot in my comedy on Pooh. <laughs> And what I like is that there is also this idealistic view that you can go and solve problems. So I like that part of me as an engineer and scientist where I can imagine myself flying in a TARDIS and solving problems uh, for the future. But what Sounds I also, exciting. That does sound exciting. <laughs> a lot of my dreams about me floating around in a TARDIS, by the way. But uh, the reason why I do go back to storytelling, why I do go back to stand-up comedy, is about bringing those voices forward about people who cannot be here today, about those who have to wake up every day and think about how am I going to dispose of my poo. And what I do in my comedy is actually enact a situation where I am battling it out to dispose my poo in a very dignified manner. <laughs> and the sequences actually got flying toilet. And that does involve a lot of storytelling. That does involve art. And that does involve me being humble and putting myself in this position of imagining I'm living in a slum with dogs barking around, so I'm trying to be very quiet, and a situation where I'm trying to maintain my dignity and pride. 
So I think it is important, you're right, the scientists do need to be humble. They do need to listen to voices and they do need to understand and bring forward those day-to-day -day experiences combined with evidence. If you combine evidence with day-to-day -day experiences, I think that would be a winner for me. Gavin, do you want to add anything? Um, yeah, art and science. I mean, science seems so different to art. It doesn't seem to be quite, it doesn't seem to be quite, like, it's not like, a, like the scales, like it's art here and science there. I mean, you know, obviously, obviously, well, obviously there's a point where, you know, if you're a scientist and you, and you make a discovery, like, like you, you've kind of been creative. You've, you've kind of, you've looked at the problem through, through a different lens and, or, you've, or you've sort of gone, okay, well, we, everyone thinks this. Well, what about that? And, and somehow that was the most, you know, it, it could have been the most opposite thing to think, and, and it happens to be correct, or as good as we find it to be at this particular point. Um, you know, there isn't a sort of, a be there's no better kind of solution at the, at the moment. You know, I think that, uh, that obviously there's a great faith in this word science, that somehow um, it will, and there's a, you know, there's a tranche of people who's, who certainly like feel very happy to kind of coast along at the moment because they feel that there will be a scientific or a technological solution to the problem that we have at the moment. And, and I think it's a bit like, well, the idea is that it was science that kind of caused the problem. Maybe science can alleviate and sort of sort the problem out. Um, Steady. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, you know we're, in a, we're in a situation where, where it's, it's about kind of, um, you know, Rather than, rather than sort of like making and doing, which I think is super important, making and doing, I think it's, it's sort of make do. And, you know, I think we are in a situation where we, we, we have to look at, at everything's already here. You know, we have to look at elegant solutions to consumption, um, to, to, to how to, to kind of really get, become more essential. Thank you. I think Pretty's got something to say here. Yes, I think he just said scientists have caused this problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I was going to say, I mean, is it scientists or is it us as human beings who have consumed and consumed and consumed? So I think there's more broader question which goes beyond the scientific community of what we are doing as a collective. Are we taking responsibility and ownership for what we've done to the planet? I mean, Mark Messling started us off with highlighting what we have really done, the damage and destruction we've caused to this planet. Yeah. Uh, I really think that for me, actually, the best artists have a bit of scientists in them, and the best scientists have a bit of artists in them. Uh, this, this, that's without question. I mean, Einstein couldn't even do maths properly. He, <laughs> he just dreamt of these things that would ask his friend to work out the mathematics. <laughs> for his imagination. Well, I agree with you. I mean, one of my great heroes is Jacob Bronowski, and he was very clear. He wrote essays saying, look, the, both science and art, they both spring from the same well of imagination. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't have imagination as a scientist, you'll never do anything. Um, yeah, you, I think an artist also has to be organized to be effective, in my opinion. <laughs> well, I'm a, an art professor, so <laughs> I really like literate artists. I think when you're just kind of, when, uh, you know, science can limit an artist. And to have a limit is good. It's a good thing. Don't just kind of fly off with the... Can I ask all three of you another question, which is, particularly during the pandemic, there was this lots of talk about follow the science and this is the truth. 
And there's a sort of a tension between truth and stories, because stories, they're important, there's nothing to do with truth necessarily. For you first, pretty. is there an overemphasis? Are we too in love with the idea of truth and not enough in love with what stories can give us? That can be true, because I think uh, COVID is an interesting one, because a lot of it was about people's lived experiences, their experiences during the lockdown, their experience of coming out of the lockdown, and we can see implications of that today in our behaviours. And I think um, we ask questions of should we be flying more or less because we survived during the time? What is that implication for climate change? So in a way, COVID really made us kind of explore those issues. But also I think COVID made us very humble because it kind of showcased that we are powerless. We all were locked in our houses. If someone had told me three years ago that we'd all be locked in our houses for a year, as a scientist, I would have said, oh, no way, that's ridiculous. We can overcome this with technology. So I would say, yes, nature has a way of humbling us. And I think it's time to kind of acknowledge the power of nature. Samson and Gemma, what do you think about this balance between truth and power? Or if you think it's a stupid question, we'll move on. I think, there's, um, I think all systems under the sun have a limit. And basically, the limit is open to everybody. So what power does, it rushes to the limit and gives give it a, a singular interpretation, if you like. But actually, that, that horizon is open, you know? So the whole point of us, imagination, is to reclaim that horizon away from uh, uses of power. And, and, and it's that antagonism between, if you like, power and sovereignty that pushes society forward. When, um, when society is totally operating within the horizon of power, it dies. Uh, the same, I would think that uh, I would like to have sover sovereignty, but freedom is always, uh, actually, you, you can only experience freedom with, uh, with a limit. So in a way, I want power. I want, I want something to kick against. <laughs> so it's like if you're, if you're a teacher, you know this. Uh, if, if you don't give the, stu uh, the, 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 the students anything to do, they're bored. And as soon as you give them assignment, the whole classroom wells up in activity. And, and so, yeah, uh, it, it's, a, it's a recognition about how, all th how, how, how things work together, if you like. We have a tendency as human beings to settle for, uh, for the easy, you know, but, but actually to be alive is a constant struggle and it's about affirming initial things, if you like. Are you talking about boundaries somehow? I mean, is it power, does power create boundaries? I, I think power is supposed to be ongoing, but when people are in power, they think, oh, let's call shop now. But that's a mistake. You know, the, the, the tendency, our temptation is always to close shop. I mean, we all have that temptation. As, as scholars, people make brilliant research, and as soon as they have succeeded, they want to close shop. So for me, as an artist, is to, 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 to keep the shop open. That's my job in society. <laughs> but it, it's a state of flux, though. It's, it's, it's yes, like being, of course, it's yes. Like being so I'm the gatekeeper of that flux, yes, of truth, if you like. But is it fluctuating truth? Yes. I mean, it, I think this is the thing, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. it's very interesting to even, well, I mean, it's impossible really, isn't it, to sit and talk about truth? Because 
obviously you get into that reflexive problem of how to, you know who's to say well, <laughs> well, you have to get to some meta you have to have a meta truth in order to talk about them you know in order to talk about the truth you have to you can't say the truth doesn't exist or the truth is x or the truth is y because obviously would that be would i be telling the truth especially as a trickster <laughs> and who's well, that trickster truth? shows that that, that the truth is, is that I think the trickster in society represents the truth in that you can't really, as soon as you found truth, it means it's no longer there, in my opinion. I think pretty has been to say about this. Well, it's just that I'm going back to day-to-day -day lived experiences because that shapes what we think is truth. So your version of truth could be different from my version of truth. Your perception of the state of world could be different. And I mean, coming back to power dynamics, uh, we're thinking about structured and formalized power structures but we also have informal networks, organizations, social networks, mm -hmm. and those really matter mm -hmm. because those networks are the ones which really influence behaviors and what we do and how we perceive truth and life around us. Yes, okay. I think truth is constantly moving, in my opinion. Once you found it, it's moved. So it's a constant. Well, that's why I was just wondering about the relationship, because scientists will say, look, there are some things which are true, I and mean, it's true that two and two is four, and it's not going to change. And nobody's lived experience is going to make it change. Except for when it's not. Except for when it's not, obviously. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> yeah. okay. I suppose what I was getting is, there is, I, I think, attention, because science is more easily trapped. You think, think two and two is, is four? Personally, yes. I mean, <laughs> you have to impose that. <laughs> Perhaps I'm just showing my limitations, which is fine. But I, it I, does I think there's an. I, I think science has an endless horizon. You know, so I would agree. Yeah, I, I, I suppose what I was getting at is, I've worked with scientists all my life, and I think scientists are more easily trapped in thinking we know the truth. This is it. Whereas artists, look at the pair of you tend to say, no, it's not. Well, it might have been yesterday, but I'm not sure about tomorrow. And mm -hmm. is, that, is that a good thing? Can scientists live with that? Or eventually, will you just lock the doors and keep them out? <laughs> well, I'm still um, recovering from the two plus two. It might not be four, I have to say. Uh, now, I won't lock doors on both of you, uh, because a lot of our work is exploration as well. Uh, it is about discovering the truth in multiple forms and shapes, but it's also about communication, because a big part of this is visualization of what I think is the truth, the storytelling, the communication, uh, to engage with others, because truth only becomes truth in part if it's accepted widely, if it's accepted by the world. And I think that's where communication, that's where storytelling arts does have a role to play. And I don't mean that, um, Let's, the scientists will do all the hard work and artists can come in as an add-on with a pretty picture or story. I mean working together as a team right from the outset. So when we are looking at scientific theories and facts and figures, really questioning them wholeheartedly, thinking about whether this is the truth, whether my perception of truth is really the truth for someone sitting in a village in Africa or someone sitting in Indonesia or for someone in Europe who's uh, someone in Italy, for example, who's dealing with floods, and their perception of truth can change. I suppose my, my last question is whether the stories which both science and art are telling now about what we think is the coming future, whether they're helping us or whether they're hindering us, do we need to have more dystopias or more utopias in our stories, I mean? 
I think it's an exciting time. You know, I think it's an exciting time. There was a, after the period after enlight, enlightenment, I think that uh, there were a lot of pretentious men who shouldn't have been writing books. In, and I think in time, <laughs> science too is getting more sophisticated, discovering in, uh, in quantum theory, etc. There are all kinds of things, new, exciting development. And I think eventually all these things are gonna come together into something. Um, for, for instance, I'll tell you, I was, I was talking about the notion, I, I, did, I, I did my PhD on um, Nyao traditions in Southern Africa. And I was of this impression that, yes, things were developing from uh, Africa, from, uh, from there to now. But actually, after my research, I thought that the world has regressed. So I saw that, let's say, for instance, that proper civilization was in sub-Saharan Africa, where for a long time humans lived with their environment in power for hundreds of years. And my theory is that as humans were moving out of Southern Africa, they lost some of the wisdom and they started building all these cumbersome pyramids and architecture and then going all the way up north and we have this, for me, this for me represents, represents more like, you know, the will to structure people, the will to control people. But what fascinates me for me are those uh, philosophers, uh, philosophers in Southern Africa that are about, you know, that when a society is successful, it doesn't leave behind cumbersome pyramids, but it leaves behind a field of flowers. <laughs> you know, so so um, for me, the latest developments in science will lead to that. I'm sure that, uh, I'm, I'm optimist, I should like to think that I think there'll be a more creative society coming ahead of us. Um, can I ask if there are any questions in the audience? I suppose what I notice in these spaces where we're all trying to do the right thing and being quite earnest about it and so on, is um, there's less of us than I'd like. I wonder why that is. You know, the small audiences end up being the same, same small audiences in, in, in many spaces. And, and, and also, uh, I'd like to ask you about you know, the huge mis-disinformation campaign that often isn't mentioned. You know, we're not in a world that's... We could have done this 30 years ago, and there's very real reasons why we haven't. And I wonder why that's left out of the conversation so often. Thank you. I'd have a go at it quickly. Um, and it is really, literally, the fact that it seems that the best stories were being told by the wrong people. And also, I think, it is, comes back to that idea of... of the culture being dominated by capital. And that, that, that's also the reason why that we have a small audience as well. I mean, weirdly enough, like, I think if you don't pay, like, you get a smaller audience. People, they sign up, they RSVP sign up, and then they don't turn up. Sorry, sorry all those people that did that. Um, but, uh, but I think that... that also, this, this sort of notion of, of disinformation, um, that is actually also a playground for storytelling. It is actually and can make a really, a really rich place to tell stories. And coming back to, like, is it dystopian? Is it utopian? Well, I think it... Yeah, it's dystopian, utopian, it's, it's everything, you know. And, and also, it's, 
the, it is a bit like, we're, I think, you know, coming back to this being such an important time to be alive, because we're really, like, everything is really, really fresh. You know, I think we are all really kind of hurting in a way. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's amazing and vivid and profound. Another question, anyone? There's a gentleman here. Thank you. Um, in terms of the, the impact that the arts can have in changing mindsets, in, in this case, in, in telling the story of the need for a new, for a new system, to replace this system of greed that you were describing, um, can you think of an example in history where art has actually um, succeeded in, in changing behaviors, in changing patterns of, of belief. Can you, can you th when we, we're talking about this, are, are, we, are we thinking of something that has already yeah. happened? Yeah, I saw Michael Jackson's uh, Billie Jean. <laughs> they were all changed for me. Now, I'll give you another example. Um, I think art is actually underestimated. Um, there are many moments. It depends on how you look at it. I mean, you can have creative uh, thinkers. For me, if you think that art is, is just representation, then art hasn't done much, you know? But, you know, the, the idea of art as representation, mimesis, if you like, that was developed by the Greeks and maybe, like, revived during the Renaissance. It's very short, it's thin. I don't even think the Greeks believed that art was a representation. Actually, these are speculations of, uh, like, Plato. So, if you think of art in its kind of like, for instance, you take uh, um, Plato's Republic. For me, that's a work of art, you know? And he changes society. Society now is, is, is the idea of nation states are, are structured according to some artist's speculation, for instance. So, so, so art can have that power, but we have to be open-minded as to what art is if we, we are to truly uh, appreciate the impact of, uh, yeah of art, art in society. Yeah. Art can be quite inspiring, actually, um, because um, I, my claim to fame is I'm an engineer who works on solving the infrastructure challenges, but clearly I haven't, because there are billions of people on this planet who don't have access to services. But I get myself out of bed every morning to say I'm the optimist. Something little I will do will address a small part of the challenge. Uh, but I get inspired by art as well. I mean, Scatman, for example, it's an example of someone who overcomes a personal challenge to put themselves out there, to narrate their challenge. So I think art can be inspiring, can be exciting, and can be used as a means for being inspired and for communication. Um, ladies and gentlemen, can I just ask you all to join me in thanking Samson and Pretty and Gavin? Mm -hmm.